The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The green hydrogen revolution is coming a lot quicker than anyone expected. That's this week's theme for the exchange, which we've rebranded as the Road to COP26, the mega climate summit this fall. Give a listen to episode number one. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation on business, finance and economics brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views, the opinion service of Reuters. I'm Lisa Yucca, a financial columnist based in Milan. If you're wondering how close we are to a clean hydrogen revolution, keep on listening. For this week's episode, I'm in fact joined by Marco Alvera, who's a passionate hydrogen advocate and has written two books about the subject. Marco is also the chief executive of SNAM, a 17 billion euro Milan-listed company who's Europe's largest gas infrastructure operator. Under his leadership, his company is pivoting towards greener energy solutions, including biofuels and hydrogen. But can green hydrogen, which is very expensive today, be a real alternative to electricity or traditional fossil fuels? And how quickly? We'll discover that together now. Thanks for joining us today, Marco. It's great to have you here on the exchange. You have been running SNAM, which is Europe's biggest gas infrastructure company, and worth about 17 billion euros in equity since 2016. But you're also well known in energy circles for being a hydrogen evangelist. Your second book on this topic, The Hydrogen Revolution, a Blueprint for the Future of Clean Energy, came out in English in the UK on August 26th. But you are coming from a fossil industry. So when did you embrace the hydrogen vision and the climate challenge. Has this anything to do with your Venice roots, maybe? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for this question. Certainly, uh, coming from Venice, I I always have vividly in mind the perils of rising uh, seawaters and and the catastrophe that can be brought on by, by climate change, especially to such a fragile environment. I've been Uh, deeply concerned about climate change now for 10 years. I have first started studying hydrogen in 2004, but I was very skeptical, like most of my colleagues in the industry, that we could get anywhere up to scale because of costs. Hydrogen in 2004 was costing 70 times more than oil. So I loved it as a technology, but I was very skeptical we could implement it rapidly. This is green hydrogen made from renewable energy, mainly from Mm -hmm. solar energy. What has happened since is that the cost of solar has fallen dramatically. And we can today make green hydrogen at two times the cost of oil. And the big bet, the reason I got excited and I decided to write books on the topic is not to be an evangelist, but to to share uh, 20 years of work in the energy industry that I've done and, uh, and the confidence I have in our team, and we share this with many other companies and analysts, that we can get green hydrogen to reach oil parity in the next five years, to have a completely renewable fuel 
that behaves in a very similar way to petrol, to, to gas, to oil, even to coal, but is made entirely from renewable sources at the same cost. This is really the breakthrough that we're about to witness. So, so this is quite an optimistic vision, I would say. Five years is, uh, is very near, uh, is very near us. I mean, what are the steps you think that need to be taken by companies or maybe by governments as well to make hydrogen price competitive vis-a-vis -vis fossil fuels, but also, I would say, renewable energies? Because, I mean, people may have to choose which energy source they, they want to use. Let's start from the last bit of your question. You're absolutely right. Wherever we can use directly renewable energy, there's no point in converting it into hydrogen and then back into electricity. So electricity today is about 20% of the energy mix. I expect it will go up to 50, even beyond 50. Where hydrogen comes in is that remaining 50% that we cannot electrify directly. This is heavy industry. This is to make steel, cement, glass, where we need high temperatures. This is heavy transport for shipping, maybe for aviation, and long-distance trucking. That's where hydrogen comes in. And to bring the costs down to oil parity in five years, and let's say to coal parity in 10 years, and this is a view I share with the Department of Energy, with Secretary Kerry of the United States. Uh, this is about $1 a kilo is, is parity with coal and about $2 a kilo of hydrogen is parity with oil. The DOE says uh, $1 a kilo in 10 years. We're saying $2 a kilo in five years. So it's a very linear path. To get there, we need renewable energy costs to come down, which they're doing on their own merit. Mm -hmm. And we need electrolyzer costs to come down. Electrolyzer is the equipment we use to split water, to split H2O in two components in oxygen, and in H2, which is two atoms of hydrogen that form that hydrogen molecule that then, once we've stripped it of oxygen, behaves uh, in a very similar way to fossil fuels, but it's 100% renewable. To bring the cost of electrolyzers down, we need to simply scale up manufacturing, scale up production. And this is already happening uh, in Europe uh, and in China, and I think, suspect, will soon start happening in the United States as well. Okay, let, let me just take a step back a, a, again, you know, while I'm following uh, your, your train of thoughts. Uh, we, we've been discussing hydrogen, thinking about green hydrogen, right? The one that is made uh, from renewable sources. But there is a debate ongoing which surrounds also blue hydrogen, which, you know, is made from, from gas. I mean, which, you know, is, is closer to your, your core business. I mean, the UK just unveiled, for instance, a, a dual track strategy that says there is a role for blue hydrogen. I mean, in, in your vision, in your sort of five-year vision, I mean, do you, do you expect blue hydrogen to just be a, an afterthought and, and not really be part of this transition? Or, or can it have a role? And, and also following up on that, what about the EU's approach towards hydrogen? Because, I mean, the UK um, appears to be quite um, innovative in a way, or at least, you know, giving equal dignity uh, to both uh, um, types of hydrogens in, in, the, in the short term, at least. I think the UK policy is a very balanced one. The urgency of reducing CO2 emissions is such that we need all hands on deck. We need all technologies available that reduce emissions. And if blue hydrogen is done properly with the right standards, 
it is a very carbon, uh, low carbon density uh, fuel. Uh, it probably won't ever get to zero, but we're talking about maybe 90, 95% reductions that can be achieved. Now, of course, if you don't do it properly and it turns out to be uh, carbon dense uh, fuel, it's not interesting. So blue uh, doesn't mean much until we really talk about the standards associated with the entire gas supply chain, methane leakage and other things that need to be taken into account when we quantify it. I suspect that because the cost of green is falling so quickly, uh, green will be pricing blue out of many, many markets. Now, of course, if you're in Russia, in Iran, in Qatar, where you have ultra cheap uh, methane and natural gas, uh, then blue uh, will be cheaper than green, especially if you don't have a lot of sun in, in, in Russia. But when it comes to uh, Southern Europe, for example, solar made hydrogen will be in five years cheaper than blue hydrogen. Just to give a number, the last solar auctions in um, Portugal were around 12 euros per megawatt hour. A megawatt hour is what we consume in a month at home. Um, so about 12 to 13 euros. The price of natural gas today uh, in Europe is 55 euros per megawatt hour. So even with all the inefficiencies of electrolyzers, we could theoretically make hydrogen today in Portugal cheaper than blue hydrogen. We could make green hydrogen from solar cheaper than blue hydrogen. So that's where the technology is, is, is driving us. Uh, but I'm not one to say that we need to pick one technology over the other. I think the markets should be allowed to function. I think new technologies should be allowed to develop. And so long as they are carbon neutral or have a very low carbon density, any technology is welcome. No, I, I hear you. But I mean, you seem to suggest that when it comes to Europe, for instance, and in particular Southern Europe that you just mentioned, green hydrogen may be a more direct way uh, and we may not need to focus so much on blue hydrogen. Is that correct? That's correct if you are in a sunny, um, if, if you're in a sunny uh, area. If I think about Germany, Germany today is uh, heavily reliant on nuclear, on diesel, on coal. And Germany has decided to exit diesel, nuclear and coal. And there's no way Germany can develop sufficient domestic renewable energy to replace these heavy fossil molecules. So the only way Germany can replace these fossil molecules is to be importing significant quantities of green molecules, which is basically hydrogen. So they can import blue hydrogen from Russia or let's say cheaper green hydrogen from the North Sea or from Southern Europe the price at which Russia will be selling uh, blue hydrogen to Germany, I suspect will be a function of the cost of green hydrogen imported into Germany. So it's, uh, it really depends on which part of the world uh, you're looking at. I suspect Europe will be importing great quantities of solar-made green hydrogen from the Middle East and from North Africa. And Japan and Korea, by the way, have already started doing this with the NEON project in Saudi Arabia, producing big quantities of ammonia, which is a hydrogen derivative, and, and that's being shipped out into, into Japan mainly. 
Okay. Uh, just um, again, looking into the future, not just uh, uh, focusing on technology or prices. I mean, you have already mentioned that hydrogen, I mean, although the, the prevailing view is that uh, electrification will touch many sectors of the economy, there are areas, some of which you mentioned, which may not be easily electrified. You mentioned steel, for instance, but I wonder whether we can expand a little bit more on what could be the applications, you know, what applications make sense for hydrogen and by when? Uh, I mean, is it, you know, feasible to think that in five years from now, some trains uh, that maybe are using diesel today will be powered by hydrogen or, or big steel makers will, will be powered by hydrogen? So, so give me a sense of the practical applications. So uh, there are companies that are beginning to work on hydrogen and steel already today. We have uh, over 150 projects in Italy that range from trains to ceramic to glass to steel indeed. So I think the heavy industry is a no-brainer. I think there's a growing consensus now that that will have to switch to hydrogen in order to be carbon neutral. And as Europe moves towards carbon border adjustments, that will happen in the next begin to happen in the next five years when it comes to trains over long distances or where it's hard to electrify them like the united states like india india and the us all their trains are running on diesel right now mm -hmm. and it will be a lot cheaper to convert them to hydrogen rather than to uh, overlay an electric system for the whole um, massive distances that they have when it comes to trucks, I think the jury is out. Will it be fuel cell trucks? Will it be battery powered trucks? I've been speaking to most of the truck manufacturers. I think they're still debating this. A lot of the experts and the scientists think it should be fuel cells, but because of the lack of refueling infrastructure, uh, some of the commercial departments in these same companies are pushing for battery powered. Now, the good news is that the truck is the same. It's an electric truck. So the debate is not kind of hydrogen versus uh, versus electric. The debate is fuel cell versus battery. And I think we'll see better technologies in both. And we will see how they can compete both in trucks and in cars for longer distances. I think another uh, key area to examine will be heating. There's mm -hmm. a lot of arguments to say that hydrogen can be stored for months, even for years or decades or centuries. It's, it behaves like a normal um, molecule, so you can store it in a tank or underground. And that's particularly important in countries like the UK, like northern Italy, like Germany, where we consume six times more energy in the winter than we do in the summer. And there's no way you could cater for that seasonal swing with a battery. Batteries are not designed to store energy for long periods of time. Batteries are designed to run as many cycles as they can to provide the flexibility that is needed to balance the intermittency of renewables. But no one has ever thought of charging a battery in June to discharge it in December. What we do with natural gas and what we will be doing with hydrogen is exactly that. We pump natural gas underground in the summer and we produce it out of our reservoirs in the winter. And as I mentioned, that value of that energy we produce in the winter just for seasonal needs is six times greater than the absolute energy that we consume in the summertime in a country like the UK. So heating, hydrogen will play a big role in heating. I yet can't tell if it's going to be 
at the individual household level or more at kind of district heating level. Shipping, I think there's a consensus that shipping will be ammonia and for airplanes as well. So in a nutshell, 50% will be direct electrification. The remaining 50% will be split between hydrogen and biomethane or other uh, biomass and biofuels. Whether that's going to be a balanced 25-25, uh, I think will will simply depend on uh, technology and on the development of new synthetic and biofuels. Okay, so if we are just, uh, you know, looking into the future, what part of SNAM's EBITDA would you say might come from hydrogen in a decade, for instance? Well, we have a clear commitment that we've stated to become carbon neutral by 2040. So, the next decade is going to be the most complex decade of transition, of overlap, of uh, still big volumes of methane being transported and growing volumes of biomethane and hydrogen. When it comes to 2050, 100% of the molecules that will move in our network will be uh, renewable, so either hydrogen or biomethane. It will be a gradual process uh, to get there, but we consider ourselves an energy infrastructure company. We don't own the molecules that are going through our network. We're not responsible for them. And our revenues are not linked to those mo molecules. Our revenues are linked to renting out our infrastructure. So from that perspective, we're an infrastructure company more than an oil and gas company. And, and I think it's important to make that distinction because the people who will be asked to offset or to compensate or to abate the emissions coming from the molecules are the people either producing them or selling them or using them, certainly not the people moving them around. So all our investments today, we invest uh, six and a half billion euros in our five-year plan, are hydrogen ready. That means that everything we do today is preparing for a fully decarbonized SNAM and a fully decarbonized network and storage infrastructure. Okay, but what happens to companies like SNAM, I mean, obviously, you're one of several players in this uh, in this field. If the hydrogen revolution does not come as quickly as envisaged, will you and other companies have to write down the value of your pipes, for instance? Is that a risk? You know, people think that uh, the focus of on hydrogen is also somehow a focus that is needed because fossil fuels face an existential threat. I think fossil fuels face more than an existential threat. Fossil fuels face the certainty that they will need to be either decarbonized or uh, they will disappear from the market, at least in Europe. So the uh, transportability of hydrogen is an opportunity more than an excuse. We are not worried about having stranded assets because it will either be gas or decarbonized gas. There is simply no way that you could provide the flexibility, the seasonality, the cost effectiveness of natural gas without switching to hydrogen. That's because, as we mentioned before, it cannot, some sectors just simply cannot be electrified. So in a way, we're perfectly hedged. If hydrogen happens sooner, we're ready to accelerate and take it into the network. If it happens later, we're going to continue to run the existing uh, infrastructure in its current form. And biomethane is something we don't talk enough about. It behaves exactly like fossil methane, but it's 
100% renewable because it's made from a biofuel. Indeed. Is um, SNAM ready to switch to hydrogen? What I mean is, do you need to upgrade, for instance, your network to carry hydrogen? Just explain to me if there is like a, an investment needed to switch to this new form of energy. We have been the first in the world, we think, to test a hydrogen a natural gas blend delivered to uh, two final end users for a period of one month at up to 10%. And so we have proven that you can use the existing infrastructure for uh, a blend. And we've also been testing 100% hydrogen in labs. And indeed in the world, there's 6,000 kilometers of pure 100% hydrogen uh, pipeline systems. And the steel, the quality of the steel used in these hydrogen pipelines is exactly the same quality steel that we use in our gas pipelines. So the vast majority of the infrastructure is already there. What we will need to change as we increase the parts of the network that are dedicated to hydrogen, or indeed if we have uh, some significant blending opportunities in some parts of the network, we will need to change what I call the software of the system, which is the compressor stations, the valves, some of the membranes uh, around the kits that we have above the ground. But the majority of the assets that are below the ground, the steel, that's already 100% hydrogen proof in the vast majority of the cases. Okay, so SNAM is ready for this switch, but what about other regions in the world? I obviously don't have visibility over the quality of networks in other regions of the world. I mean, do you think other countries will have to invest massively to, to make these gas networks ready? to take hydrogen. One of the good things about the oil and gas industry is that because there are such big global super majors, the standards are the same all over the world. And so a lot of the projects were started as means of exporting or moving around upstream gas. They were participated by the major oil and gas companies. And so the quality of the steel is the same almost everywhere in the world. We, at least in Europe, have the certainty of this because we work with 27 different other TSO companies and we share everything I told you from a technology and from safety and from a steel quality perspective. The amount of investments needed are a function of how granular the network is. Some countries like Italy have a big share of natural gas in their energy mix. So we have a big network that's very granular also, the morphology of Italy is such that we have abundant infrastructure, so we can dedicate parts of the network to biomethane, parts of the network to hydrogen. Um, other countries have much smaller natural gas industries, and so they will need to, to be developing more uh, new interconnections. But this is not going to be the challenging part of, of the energy transition, because there's a lot less nimbyism when it comes to building below the ground pipeline than there is, for example, when building above the ground uh, turbines or solar panels or uh, electric, uh, electric grids. Okay. Marco, I mean, you just mentioned the oil super majors of the fossil fuel industry. Do you think that we could see the rise of hydrogen super majors or maybe countries that are particularly well placed to be leaders for for this technology i mean to actually for the production of this uh, energy source absolutely so i think there will be 
uh, countries that move faster than others. I think in the Gulf, for example, there's a, a lot of action to move quickly, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also in uh, Abu Dhabi. I, I suspect the U.S. will catch up quickly with Kerry and the DOE being very focused on hydrogen right now. And Chile is an outlier in terms of wanting to be a big hydrogen exporter. It has ideal conditions. And when you have a combination of sun and wind, then you can really squeeze a lot more hours out of the same electrolyzer and that will ramp up its efficiency. When it comes to companies, I have spent many years working in NL that is now positioning itself as a utility super major. And I've worked uh, even more years in any, which is an oil and gas major. And what I've witnessed is that the utilities tend to stem and originate from former monopolies. So they tend to have 100% of projects in which they participate. Whereas the oil and gas companies, they, since their origins, have always shared because of the risks involved, have always shared projects. So more than 50% of Exxon's and BP's and Annie's and Total's production is not operated by them. They have minority stakes. So it's a more collaborative industry where big companies get together to uh, finance and develop complex and risky projects. For example, in, in TAP, which is a pipeline uh, connecting um, Turkey to Italy and, and after Turkey, the southern corridor going all the way into Azerbaijan, bringing natural gas from the Caspian Sea all the way into Italy. You know, we have 20%, BP has 20%, soccer has 20%. So I suspect because hydrogen is more complex than simply laying out solar panels or wind farms, that hopefully we will see utilities and oil and gas companies working together. I don't think we need any new kind of just pure hydrogen players, but I think utilities can learn a lot from oil and gas companies when it comes to collaboration. And I think oil and gas companies can learn a lot from utilities when it comes to energy management, electricity storage, and renewable development. Okay, thanks, uh, Mark. I mean, from what you've told us uh, today, the trajectory towards hydrogen uh, seems to be pretty clear. But are there maybe ways to speed up the financing of the transition to hydrogen? I mean, in Europe, we have... Uh, the, the recovery plan, which is very much focused on climate change, green transition. I mean, is that enough to help accelerate this transition? Financing is not the problem. There are, Mark Carney told me, $70 trillion of ESG capital waiting for projects. There's much more capital than projects right now when it comes to the green deal or the energy transition. I see two bottlenecks. One will be availability of uh, manpower, of engineers skilled and trained uh, to deal with this new commodity. It takes years to form people and we need to get going. And certainly in SNAM, we're hiring a lot and we're investing a lot in R&D and on training. But the second bottleneck is a more political one linked to the standards. We need to have a very healthy debate as to how much you can transport in existing infrastructure, how much you can store, where you can store it the difference between blue and green, what the cost levels are, what standards we need to really consider blue, blue, and not blue, gray, gray is the word we use for the hydrogen that emits CO2 because you don't capture it. So I think the definition of certificates of origin, of standards of kind of what we mean when we say blue, 
we should very quickly agree on what we agree on. I'm happy to disagree about the future, but I'm very unhappy when we disagree about the present state of affairs. And science, we need science-based facts and we need the debate to really accelerate and to come into a new dimension where we cannot have disagreement around engineering facts of the present state of this energy system. Let's hope that uh, the EU, for instance, and others can quickly focus on these standards uh, because, I mean, some of the challenges you've just mentioned seem to me potentially disruptive on this timeline five years that you were sort of mentioning earlier on. And again, on financing, I totally hear you when you say there's an abundance of capital, but I was just wondering whether maybe, I think in the past you have referred to hydrogen bonds, you know, some special instrument that somehow can catalyze the interest of investors could be considered uh, in the current circumstances. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's going to be different from uh, renewables. Uh, we can no longer afford to levy new subsidies on people's bills the way we did for solar and for wind in Italy, Spain, Germany, and the UK. This was a heroic effort that cost consumers a thousand billion euros. Most of that money went to China, uh, effectively bringing the cost down for the whole world, but at huge cost, and I would say regressive and an unfair cost to consumers, because when you're putting a euro amount on someone's bill, you're in a way taxing the unemployed, the student, the pensioner uh, in the same way as you're taxing the professional. So it's a regressive form of fundraising. I think there's a lot of debt uh, capital and equity capital available out there. As Europe uh, was founded on the coal industry and the coal and steel community, hopefully a green Europe can look for hydrogen as a means of creating some kind of common European bonds, maybe to finance the Green Deal. And to, and to accelerate, as I mentioned, the definition of, of standards. I think it's going to be the finance world that ultimately will have responsibility to define what constitutes a green investment and a green project or a blue investment and a blue project, because the ESG standards are going to be very strict and they will in turn determine, I think, also the industrial standards. That was a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Marco, for joining Thanks, us Lisa. today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Also, check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.